Hi, and welcome to our year-end edition of the Inspect and Adapt podcast. I am your host, Mark Griffin, Director of Customer Solutions here at Constructs. We are a team of software engineering experts founded by legendary author Steve McConnell. Here at Constructs, we believe every software team can be more successful at delivering higher levels of business value. For the majority of the podcast episodes over the last couple of years, we've structured the podcast around recent engagements that our consultants have delivered. As is consistent with Inspect and Adapt, we are also experimenting with recording the podcast around topics that aren't directly related to any specific engagement, but rather focus on a specific practice or set of practices. But today, ha, in the immortal words of Monty Python, and now for something completely different. Since this is our year-end podcast, we thought we'd do something that takes stock of the year just past and the year upcoming. For the former, a few weeks back, we asked you, our clients, to give us some help on that. So we asked you for your disaster stories. What went wrong with your projects last year? And what's on your plate for 2023 to attempt to remedy those disasters or just things you're going to be doing differently to try and not reproduce them again? And boy, you listeners, you certainly did not disappoint us with your stories. So you might think of this session as therapy filled with empathy and not just us saying, wow, I'm glad I don't work there. So what we did was read some of our favorites and just talk a bit about a reaction to your tales of woe. So to help me with some thoughts on it, I invited two people with street cred here, Construct Senior Fellow Earl Beatty and Principal Consultant Steve Taki to sit behind their respective mics for this session. Let's pick up the conversation as I frame what this discussion will be about in detail. And I have to say, you had a lot to say, so let's listen in. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about a survey we ran. You know, we had some conversation internally here at Constructs about the focus of this particular one. And as usual, we we disagreed on exactly the focus. So the two two things we wanted to talk about were we we were asking you, Constructs customers, clients, et cetera, for examples of your disasters in, in 2022, things that from the standpoint of good software engineering and good outcomes on projects really didn't meet the bar that really had problems. And a lot of you sent some really hilarious ones in hilarious being sad, I suppose, but they were, they were actually good to see sometimes. <laughs> and then we also asked you, the users to give us some feedback as to, you know, kind of your top focus areas, ensuring that maybe you don't revisit these disasters in 2023. What are you doing differently next year to remedy some of these things that came up during the course of this year? And maybe they're just things that you as an organization in, in a forward-thinking sense, think about, you know, how's my my organization going to be better next year? What are, we, what are we tired of doing in the last year or two that just needs to be resolved. Kind of like a process technical debt to some extent, you know, be carrying this crap. We've been dealing the, with these practices poorly for a long time. And, and what do we do different? We, we took a look at a lot of the things that came, came in and we boiled it down into sort of a top, I don't know, six or seven different stories. Some of them were interesting. So I thought what we would do is just, I'll toss one out and I'll let our esteemed panel here, Steve Taki and Earl Beatty, kind of chew on them, come up with some thoughts about what these people have thrown out there and, and see you know, where we go from there. So this is a kind of a freeform end of year thing. You know, I got my uh, my holiday, still have my holiday hat on, you know, it's still kind of the, in that 
in that vein. So let's kick this first one off and I'll just read the response exactly as it was sent to us because I think it's kind of interesting. We are rewriting an internal service that connects to a third-party API due to the deprecation of that API. Unfortunately, we started out three months behind their deprecation schedule and now at three weeks from the final deadline or at least four months from completing the work and at three times the cost of our previous solution. That never happens, right? Never seen that before. Yeah, this is such a common problem. I mean, we actually, in um, 10X class, we have a thing called classic mistakes. And we used to, for years, my my partners remember, do a classic mistake survey. Uh, And one of the classic mistakes often made it, it was called wasting time doing the fuzzy front end. When there's really not a strong need for it today, and there's lots of others competing ideas, and there's to sort of get budgeting, and there's just delay after delay after delay to get things going. But the deadline never really changes. Mm-hmm. That it, In this case, the API was being deprecated on this date, regardless of how long we farted around at the beginning of the project. And then we start it. And here's where we go into classic estimation problems, because when we look at the work... And we realize the work is bigger. Instead of making decisions early on, we go into pretend mode. Let's pretend it's all going to fit, even though a good estimation practice would say it's not going to. So we don't make good decisions. We pretend it's going to work. And all of a sudden, we are under massive schedule pressure. And when we start getting massive schedule pressure, bad things start to happen. In my class, I call this the copier rule. (laughs) If you have a copier and you're in a big hurry because you have to get a copy done. Um, and this might be dating my people copying things. Anymore, who knows? But it's, you're in a big hurry. You have to get that. that copier is going to jam. It's going to be out of paper. Something's going wrong because it knows you're in a hurry. But if you walk up to that copier at all relaxed, I'm in a good vibe. I got all day to hang with you, copier. It just works. And that's the way it seems to be on people. You didn't say mimeograph, so you're okay, Earl. I think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not stating me. So, yeah. I used to do offset printing. That dates me. Yeah. This is the proverbial panic sensor that's built into a lot of... Imagine that. I think the word deprecation is interesting here in the sense that this this is the person saying, we didn't agree with the schedule. It was their deprecation schedule, they said. Well, but I I think the issue, a, a major issue here, this is a special case of the fuzzy front end. I don't know of anybody, particularly if this is a paid API, free, who knows. But if if this is a subscription API, nobody's going to deprecate it with the three months announcement. You have three months to switch over to the new version. No, (laughs) typically these are going to be 12, 18, even 24 months out kind of announcement. So, I mean, who, who... is paying attention to deprecation announcements on uh, critical third party. That should be somebody's responsibility. No one seemed to have been raising the alarm early enough in this company. The description is very limited. So it's hard to say that if one of the things that they're suffering from is basically panic mode. As Steve McConnell has often said, good practices support each other. Bad practices feed off of each other. Right. And are they in the bad practices feeding off each other because of the late start, which then only makes it later because all of the rework that gets brought in because of bad practices? I think there's also another sort of spin on this, too, is that 
typically we see in these organizations that there's just too much overall work to do. There's too many things on the wish list than the internal development teams can handle. And these kind of things get shoved aside because they're not fancy, feature-laden, new things that make it work. And what we see over again is that just the hybrid, the maintenance, the upkeep of things to make sure that things that used to work still work often get put aside to something fancy, new, and flashy. And so I call this often hygiene work. Things we need to do just to keep the place running well tends to get shoved aside for something new and flashy. This, I think, is potentially a possible weakness in agile approaches where the customer does all of the prioritization with the issue being that they're highly unlikely to want to give a high priority to this housekeeping work that doesn't give them immediate business benefit. How much could we blame the customer for you can't. the business for, for not prioritizing this kind of stuff high enough? Who knows? Right. Right. And this is why we coach at Constructs almost all our clients now to adopt the practice of reserving a set amount of capacity every sprint to working on what the team wants to work on, including keeping the house in good shape and just say, you know what, this is just your tax we pay property tax so we can have all these services. We pay utility bills. This is just the bills you have to pay in order to get the things that you want. Is some sort of overhead that we do to maintain our system at the right state. And this should have been, this API should have been on that radar, as Steve was saying, for quite some time saying, okay, we got to get this done. It shouldn't have been the business's schedule so much as, no, we just, we're going to do this work. That's just what it takes. Absolutely. I'd also toss out one more thing having to do with risk management. Essentially, project management is risk management. The proposal goes, you can forget everything you ever learned about project management. If you just approach managing projects from the perspective of managing its risk. I'm having a podcast flashback. True. Yeah. You'll do 99% of uh, what you should have done to manage the project anyway. The point here is, is that a very, very common risk is an external dependency. And a third-party API is very definitely a thir uh, an external dependency. Some risk management should have said, we need to be paying more attention to this external dependency. Well, that's good guidance. I think that's a good way to kind of summarize that one. Oh, here's another one. This is a... Uh, <laughs> I feel for people who write stuff like this. There's and there's a number of these in this in this list. But person writes: uh, project was designed, started, and worked separated and assigned out to developers by two managers who were leaving the company. Work was started without any agile Scrum initiatives. As we progressed, we soon realized the work was distributed to developers who needed each other's code to be able to code their own parts. And soon, a consultant was hired to try and get the project organized. That had the benefit of bringing to light all the missed requirements, which were now being reported as bugs. Developers warned the testing should not start as not, a, not all dependent code was completed yet, but the project was behind, so testing was pushed, and now we're six months behind and hiring more contract developers to work out the bugs. At which point, the hired contractor left, and two new employees, a project manager and an architect, were hired. The project is still being coded, but not progressing forward at all. I have one word for this person. That's indeed. Go to the website, find a different place. No. So what do you think of this mess? In the current environment where in the last couple of years through COVID and whatnot, lots of staff have been pinched, et cetera. And this is kind of a, it looks like it's a, an example of some of those things. Well, what struck me is even though it wasn't brought out as the primary complaint, 
I think a primary, when you think about it, a primary complaint is poor requirements practices, that the fact that these requirements holes are showing up this late in the game says there were some serious issues with how how they were doing requirements. It's not really clear a hundred percent but i'm i kind of suspecting that there's a failure to be managing the complexity in the code well coupling for sure right yeah yeah and that had they paid more attention to the complexity in the code base this might have been a quicker change it might have been a simpler change and again i'm guessing here but i'm definitely getting a vibe of fred brooks mythical person month Adding people to a late project essentially just makes it later. Right. I'm not sure, 100% sure, but I, I get that vibe out of it. Now let's start testing, even though we're not done, <laughs> just because we can save the calendar by parallel pathing. I think all you say is true. And I also got some other kind of things out of this, which I thought were kind of interesting. I think there is a requirements problem. But also there's just a forcing people together soon enough problem. We weren't trying to build something together. We were all trying to work independent streams. And this is, I think, what they bring out this Agile initiative. So much as Agile would have saved it, because they said they realized soon enough that, that there was dependencies. They were trying to work as independent streams without really radically coordinating. They were trying to hire someone else to organize their independent streams of work. And this is where an Agile approach, or at least some sort of real team-based approach, would have maybe helped address this kind of problem or saying, no, we're going to, as a coordinated unit, try to build something together as opposed to independent streams and trying to force them together through some sort of integration later on. And this is a fundamental flaw that we see over and over again. It used to be a joke. Steve and I, we both kind of remember the days when you used to say, oh, there's four phases. There's requirements, design, code, and test. And we said, no, there's actually five. There's requirements, design, code, test and then integrate and test and integrate. There was an integration phase that no one ever talked about because all these independent streams were trying to come together and it would never work together. We don't do a good job forcing it together so that we can see where we're really at. We pretend we think we're where we're at because we all have these streams working independently. Yeah, I mean, I would put a plug in here for a technique called design by contract. One of the reasons Boeing is pretty good I mean, they're not perfect, but they're pretty good at designing and building these hugely complex things that, that fly through the air, is that they understand that they have to manage interfaces. If there's an interface between here and there, have a, a very precise thing called an ICD, an interface control document. You can work on your side of the interface. I can work on my side of the interface, but we agree on the interface. Trouble is in code, we don't do that well enough. But we could do that with this, as I said, technique called uh, design by contract. So I think there's an opportunity for that to allow more independent work streams that will, in fact, integrate together later. But I think to me, the primary thing that could have helped a lot here is ATDD, BDD, uh, acceptance test driven development, behavior driven development, basically getting agreement on what the acceptance criteria are before you start the development and then building code which passes those agreed to test cases and then just sort of building it up so that you're not having these disparate building disparate things and hoping they'll all fit together later it's we're building something that at least solves this immediate problem right now okay we've got that solved okay what's the next problem needs to be solved 
And unbeknownst to many people, I've said this many times, acceptance test-driven development, behavior-driven development, this ATDD, BDD, you think of it as a testing technique, but in fact, it's not at all a testing technique. It's actually a requirements test uh, technique. We are expressing the requirements using test case language. Each one of those acceptance test cases is, in fact, a proxy for a requirement. It's just written in a precise test case language, not in a natural language. It's vague, ambiguous, subject to misinterpretation. And, you know, user stories are sort of the worst of that. But the bottom line is that I think they could have avoided a lot of the requirements problems by doing something more like ATDD-BDD with functional test coverage criteria for completeness. I want to pile on that requirements stuff a little bit here because we also see that the two people, the visionaries behind this, the people that would have been our authorities sort of in the charter risk asset process we talked about in an earlier podcast, they left. Who's maintaining the vision of what this is supposed to be? Who's tracking those tough trade-offs when, when we're look at schedule pressure? It doesn't sound like there's anyone left that really wants to own this puppy that says, this is my thing. So they're hiring a third-party part partner to organize this. Like, really, what are the stake do they have in this project? What vision do they have for this project and how are they going to drive it? They're going to say yes to everything, typically, which is going to drive up scope because scope typically increases the longer a project runs because people think, well, there's money going in here. Let's get this stuff done. So we got more requirements from not just the fact that we've got poor requirements potentially here with vague, ambiguous natural language requirements, but also that the people behind this left right after it started. And they're relying on a third party to say, let me drive home your business priorities. And you would hope an assumption here would be that these people who, who left actually didn't do something evil on the way out the door. With my Santa hat on, I have to trust that people are good. You should be able to see naughty and nice from that hat. Absolutely. All the people on our podcast don't realize you're wearing a Santa, a Santa <laughs> hat, but we can see each other as we're recording this. And yes, he is wearing a Santa hat. Well, it's not just evil. It's it's just, you know, it also speaks to the prioritization of this work. Because I'm now we're a little worried about how important this work was. If the people that were sponsoring, really driving it left, right? Who's championing it? Are they getting constantly pulled off into other activities, which is going to costly make it later and later and later. And maybe part of that product project manager who was there for a while, the contractor and who then left, was just trying to get it so they were just spending time on it. And that's going to make it later as well. Part I had a laugh at when reading was they made us start testing. So it generated bugs because obviously we knew it didn't work. Now we have to hire people to work the bugs we created. I've been to several companies. In fact, I'll be working with a company pretty soon who's going to set up a whole team just to deal with the bug list. Things are working, but we have these old bugs. We got to get them cleared off because our goal is to clear off old bugs off our old bug list for various reasons. And so now we got to hire people just to clear bugs that shouldn't have been generated in the first place. Right. No, I totally agree with that. All right. Here's a simple one. And you'll laugh at it because it's just, it's just, you know, it is the, the usual response. If I told you I'd have to kill you. (laughs) <laughs> that's the guy's that's the guy's response to a disaster so he's being funny but it almost infers a culture if you read it more seriously right these are people that are being punished are being held back are being potentially told that if you air any dirty laundry if you try to get outside help you're toast here we're so awesome there can't be a problem this is the one person who's going i got i got i see it the emperor has no clothes kind of syndrome here as well 
So yeah, you can read a lot of sadness into this statement. You think they work for a large technology company kind of thing. We'll say the Facebooks, Googles, Microsofts, the world, because they are often the worst ones to go out and get help when they're screwed up. Yep, internal, or or even keep it internal. You know, don't share dirty laundry, leave it. We'll address our own issues kind of thing. Yeah. So that's Yeah, because they're big enough. They, they, they have people, they think they know this stuff, but they're just feeding on themselves and, and never doing anything to actually improve their world. Well, my initial interpretation of that was that this was from somebody in a security clearancy kind of world rather than a, a don't air dirty laundry environment to which I would have said, well, just reinstate my clearance. We can have a talk about it. But <laughs> absolutely. All right. Here's another one. We were way too tolerant to low performers that wrote 1500 lines, ling classes in our code. Not sure what that means. Lines long, lines long classes. Oh, long. Okay. Spelling. Uh, this led to too much unmaintainable code in our products, which led to a development halt. We were not able to add new, fe- add new features as each edition broke something else. I'm already on record, so I'll just say it here uh, again, that as, as an industry as a whole, we are an industry of highly paid amateur programmers. <laughs> I mean, there are definitely exceptions. The general trend is for highly paid amateur developers. I want to point out there's a what I thought was a fascinating paper written by a guy named G. Gordon Schulmeyer. And the title of the paper is The Net Negative Producing Programmer, which introduces this idea that we always think that adding a developer to a team, while the developer may not add much productivity, they'll always add at least some productivity. And what uh, G. Gordon Schulmeyer brings in is the idea is, no, 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 that there are these net negative programmers. Is that we have known since the early 60s, but have never come to grips with the implications that there are net negative producing programmers and NPPs on almost all projects who insert enough spoilage to exceed the value of their production. <laughs> spoilage. So it is... A- So it is important to make the bold statement, taking a poor performer off the team can often be more productive than adding a good one. The idea being there are people who are so bad at writing code that not only are they not helping the project move forward, they're dragging it backwards by just digging a deeper hole. Now, he goes on to say this negative production does not merely apply to extreme cases and a team of 10 expect as many as three people to have defect rates high enough to make them an NPPs. With a normal distribution of skills, the probability that there's not even one NNPP out of 10 is virtually <laughs> nil. And so this is very consistent with my own personal observation that the NNPP rate in the development community is about 20%, about one in five developers. Being highly paid developers are, in fact, net negative producing. They're causing more damage than they're contributing. And the statistics hit you and you get three or four or five NNPPs in the same place. Things are going to go to heck really quickly. He brings up an important point. And one of the things we we mistake over and over again is that the skill levels for any kind of skill area is evenly distributed, that most people are somewhere in the middle. There are some high end and some low ends, and it's, it looks like a normal bell curve, and it doesn't. If you actually look at any kind of real survey of skill levels, is that the vast majority of people are on the low skill side, is that they suck. 
And then there's this long tail of goodness. <laughs> well, that gives me a lot of hope there. Well, it's like everything, right? Golf. You play golf, Mark. You know that yeah. most people are yeah. not that good. And there's stuff from people are just phenomenal. But there's a tail. And then there's a few people that are, oh, good. But most people are just like, eh. Basket, any kind of professional athletic sport. Chess playing. They saw the same thing in chess players. I mean, any kind of real skill, you have this really high skew to the low end. And one of the things that we keep doing in our industry is we keep trying to create practices or in, enable practices that are well made for the people at the high end of the of the thing. When Agile mm-hmm. first came out, it was designed by high end people for high end developers. And they've had to adapt that over the 20 years to try to make it work for the low skill developers because the vast majority are going to be low skill. But they'll look around them and see everyone else is roughly the same and go, I'm pretty good. That's the problem. We have a bunch of low-skilled people hiring other low-skilled people. And so one of the things you have to do here is, is, is create practices that surface that what Steve's talking about, those net negative performers. And But you have to force them visibility because what I hear in this story is that we not just tolerated, they didn't force the visibility. They didn't see that very clearly that things were not working so they could take action. Mm-hmm. They just sort of tolerate it because we need these people. Well, no, they're, they're net negative performers. They're making you go slower than you could. And this is something Steve has heard and we've heard with clients over and over again over the years is that we show up and say, you know what? I could have done this project with like one-tenth of the people I had on it. I just didn't know the one-tenth. Right. Well, create practices to help you find that one-tenth and go for it rather than just trying to show more people on it. Yeah, there's a very definitely oversight of the technical people that are doing the work. I don't get any sense that there was any code review. I don't get any sense that it was any kind of static analysis. I don't get any sense that there was any sort of coding standard that set sort of a minimum level of quality. To me, my coding standard, I have a personal coding standard that I use and I'm perfectly willing to share it with everybody. But the point here is that I view the coding standard as a means of protecting myself from those NNPPs. If you can't write code that complies with this fairly basic coding uh, standard, then I don't want you anywhere near my project. I mean, 1,500 lines of code, long classes. Well, I've actually seen a class that was 3,400 and change lines of code long. So we're talking more than twice as big. That class had one method. One method. That was, it had one method. (laughs) And if you're familiar with this measure called cyclomatic complexity, which is essentially the number of decisions, that the cyclomatic complexity of this one method was 2,400 and change. We want numbers like 14 or less. Yeah. Yeah. You want, yeah, 1525 at at sort of the extreme. But the point is that at 55 lines of code per page, if you printed out the source code listing, that this one class, this one method would have been 60 pages of source code. And yet, two out of every three lines of code in that 60 pages was a decision of some sort. And you think you're going to be making headway with that kind of code? This is exactly a key indicator of an NNPP. Somebody who's writing code like that is clearly an NNPP. Get them the heck away from my project. (laughs) That particular point, I think you raised, Steve. I worked for years prior to Constructs with a lot of Silicon Valley companies. And, And one of the things that became 
the norm and it was quietly adhered to was this notion, sort of like, it's like the lion chasing a bunch of people through the jungle. You don't have to be the, the fastest person. You, you just need to be faster than the last guy in line. Yeah. <laughs> so this idea of these net negative programmers, the Silicon Valley folks from an HR perspective somehow engineered this idea of like they would whack the bottom 5% every year, whether it was salespeople or developers or however people were measured, they would take them out. And the idea was eventually, given that the work remained the same and they could continue to do the work, the, the the overall performance of the organization would rise because he got rid of these NPPs. Not not necessarily. It's not a kinder, gentler way of handling it, but that was one of the things that they did is is that these people who are not good performers, they got rid of them as opposed to having them stay around. That's good in the abstract only, though. Someone had to be at the bottom 5%, even though they have five years, were performing very well, were very positive contributors, but hey, they weren't as good as the stars. Now they went out and hired other people that were worse because they got rid of the good people. The issue here is what are the criteria you use that distinguish who's the high performer from the low performer? Because I could easily, easily see the person who wrote that, uh, you know, 3,400 line of code method being given the credit. Well, only a genius could make sense of that kind of code. And so you're, you're rewarding exactly bad behavior. So you have to be, uh, I've long said what gets measured and what gets rewarded is what gets done. Because if it functions, if it works, then they're going to say, well, you actually got it working. Good for you. Take a raise. Yeah, you got to be really, really careful about what you measure and make sure that you're measuring the right things. Well, certainly this, this goes to the idea of, of the rating system and how do people get reviewed and how do you measure talent and how do you measure all that kind of thing. That, that would be a whole nother podcast. I think your point, Mark, is that there should be a system, at least a habit of consistently measuring your people against a reasonable standard. And if they can't accept that reasonable standard as Steve Talkie's talking about, don't hesitate. Move on to somebody else. You're going to be better off with a smaller, better crowd than having those extra bodies doing things that actually cause you more harm than good. Mm -hmm. to, to me, the first step here is just acknowledge the fact that there are NNPPs. Acknowledge the fact that about 20% are the, the net negative producing programmers. So now... How do we go about identifying these people? And then can they be given remedial training to make them not NNPPs? Or if they can't be improved through remedial training, just you know, let them go. Well, this, this goes back to your risk thing too, Steve, right? Uh -huh. I mean, the fact that you, if you've got these, if you've got an inordinate number of these folks on an organ, in an organization and somebody recognizes that, then that, that's a risk that certainly should be identified as a project, project success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've got three morons on my team. This is never going to work. <laughs> yeah. And then you have to set, set a limit to how much you're willing to spend on them too, because we've seen organizations, particularly in the outsourcing environment, which will outsource and will continue to outsource and continue, even though the results are horrid, but they think, oh, now we've gone down this road, we've got sunk costs, we can't stop now. And they keep trying to sink more and more resources. It's like, no, maybe it's time to do something different. We also start starting limits saying, how much am I willing to remediate this before I decide it is wasted more bad money after bad money now? 
sunk cost fallacy. That's a whole other discussion all by itself. <laughs> but uh, in for a penny, um, in for a pound. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd like to just add one little a tidbit here, and that is the SWEBOT guide, the guide to the software engineering body of knowledge. I mentioned the idea of on what basis do you say somebody is performing well, not performing well. And I'd like to at least hope that SWEBOT guide gives you a definition, a, a catalog of the skills and knowledge that the effective people have. If you have these skills and knowledge, you are much more likely to be a good and adequate performer. Not guaranteed, but at least much more likely. All right, so let's let's wrap this up with one more, and, and this is a this is the war and peace version of uh, of our of our disaster story. This person seems to really uh, appreciate the fact that this was, in his words, this I love this therapy session. Thanks for asking. So here we go. This is this is and this will touch about on about everything you could think of. Uh, on May 2019, I was called by a desperate IT director to come fix bugs on a note issuer system, and I'll I'll. Uh, I will obfuscate this. Government law mandates that all companies issue electronic invoices for every commercial transaction. The data object is extremely complex, and so are the fiscal rule notes that must be obeyed and approved by the Department of Treasury. To uh, This old programmer had left the company for better pay, and the system was a nightmare to work with. It was low on every possible quality metric, extreme complexity, duplicated code, lack of good variable names. This goes on and on. The old programmer knew the technology very well, PHP and MySQL. He knew a lot about the application domain, but didn't know anything about software engineering or good construction practices. I was given the direction of fixing the functional quality problems under the assumption that this was enough to hit the commercial targets. Lack of customer complaints, more licenses sold, hence more revenue. I didn't question the direction, went on to find a tactic that would execute the strategy. My first step was to bring the process as close to possible to CMMI2. I established requirements management with a Trello account. The old programmer didn't even use an issue tracker and configuration management through backups. The support analysis analyst, analyst and the old programmer didn't know Git and were allowed to change system for historical reasons. All the changes were made in production. I followed a maintenance process. I had to learn from the book Software Maintenance, a Practitioner Approach. Did lots of program understanding and applied the debugging techniques from Zeller's book, Why Programs Fail, and did, I think, perfect work on the four quadrants of understanding software projects. It worked well until the end of 2021 when the Department of Treasury issued a change in their system that caused our system to quit working until all adaptations were made. Problem is, I estimated about three months to make all the changes and the customers couldn't wait that long, so the project was canceled and I was out of work. I could not blame the Department of Treasury since it had warned me for more than a year that the change would be made. But needless to say, I tortured myself. And yes, I actually thought about becoming a yoga instructor <laughs> for almost a year. I had applied everything I knew and could find. I thought of myself as a decent developer. How could this have happened? My current answer is I didn't question the strategic direction I was given. I simply trusted the chain of command, as they say in the Army. Problem is, the strategy was incomplete. It should have been fixed bugs and proactively managed the adapt adaptations required by the Department of Treasury. The second part didn't exist, so there was no tactics for it. It didn't even receive any thought. The lesson is to always question the strategic direction given. Can it hit the target? Is it enough? If not, what else should I be doing? What else should be necessary? And then talk to the directors uh, is what I thought. Spending your time perfectly executing a flawed strategy 
can be very painful. That's like a $200 an hour therapy session right there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> How do you even wrap your, 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 your head around that one? I'll take first crack at it. Their end statement there, I think it's sort of the, some of the kernel of what's going on here. I've been to a lot of clients lately. And one of the things I ask them, I, I ask them, first of all, what is your product? And amazing that they often have a difficult time describing what their product is. It used to be simple kind of things. We, we make VisiCalc and that's what we sell. Blah. But now we have people who write libraries or do APIs or do services that are consumed by other services. So they're having a more difficult time describing their product. And once I try to figure out the boundary of the product, what's in their product, what's out of their product, I start saying, who are you trying to serve and what's their goal? And they're like, we don't know. We just build our product. And this is the kind of thing that's running into here in this story a little bit is like, what is the purpose of this set of uh, electronic invoicing thingy? Who's their customer? And what's their goal? And their goal is to be able to do something that the government is going to regulate to a certain degree. And if they can't do that and they can't use it, then it's worthless to them. They haven't delivered any value whatsoever. So it really comes down to understanding what your product is and what is this value proposition that you're giving to any of your clients. And this was not made clear or prioritized throughout the life of this particular example. And I see this over and over again. I was just with a client um, in Europe and no one had a clue really what the value proposition was, what they were working on in terms of how they're going to make their customers happy. And so their initiative list was all over the place. It's like throwing spaghetti on the wall kind of thing and see what sticks. Is anything here any good? Yeah, so it's interesting that Earl and I, I think, are both picking up on an economic aspect to this. And Earl is on the value side, and I'm on investment side with two sort of directions here. One of them is that I, I think software, we just have to acknowledge that software, especially the way we build it today, has a limited service life. That if you're going to write code, it's going to be able to survive for some number of years, and then you're just going to have to scrap it and replace it. And you just might as well commit and plan to something like, let's just say, a 10-year or 15-year service life. We're going to be plowing money into this thing, keeping it running for 15 years, but we know that when we hit 15 years, the code base is just going to be so obnoxious that we're going to have to just scrap it and start again from scratch. If there is still a value proposition for the product, what we need is a new code base to support the new product because the old one is too rickety. The foundation is rotted out from under it. Got to build us an entirely new structure. So committing to an economic service life at the beginning and then managing over the lifetime to that economic service life is very important. And I think that the intermediate, where are we now with this code base that is just an absolute rat's nest? I mean, why wasn't the option considered that we really need to be rewriting this from scratch? Again, the sunk cost fallacy comes in. You're, you're throwing good money after bad. If you take an economic view of software, how much are we spending, how much we're going to get back, all that kind of stuff that I've done a number of case studies, informal, yes, but for customers that basically say that if you look at it truly economically, the cost of throwing away the code base and redeveloping it from the ground up is in fact economically a better proposition than continuing to maintain this system. I mean, we uh, had one particular customer to remain nameless that was 
on the order of $105 million a year maintenance budget for a 30-some-odd-year-old code base that could be redeveloped in two years for a $30 million investment, the net result would be that the annual maintenance cost would drop from $105 million a year to $5 million a year worst case, basically saying that in the first four months this system goes live, it's essentially paid for its entire development cost. But, hey, we've already put X number of million dollars into this system. Of course, we're not going to throw it away. I mean, it's right. sunk cost fallacy right. all over again. There's a quote that I had come across a year or two ago from a, a forensic security guy who had analyzed software and for defects and for holes and for uh, exposing all kinds of things that all the nasty people in the world, the ones that got coal in their stockings, would be chasing after and, and finding ways to exploit things. And his, his comment was that a lot of people should look at software and say that it will have a longer sh shelf life than they ever imagined, and it will be used for purposes that were, it was never designed for. And that's often mm -hmm. often a, a, a case in, in software is that like, you know, yeah, well, we just add this thing to it and we can use it for another five years. But to your point, Steve, a lot of times that causes a hell of a lot more problems than it, than it solves. Mm -hmm. Are we really paying attention to what we are investing? Are we really paying attention to the value proposition? Are we really getting the best bang for the buck out of the money that we're spending on this? And the answer is quite often no, because we don't take an economic perspective on software. One of the things that I'm kind of reminded of in this story, too, a little bit is in human beings, we, we see, particularly here in the U.S., where we have a whacked out uh, healthcare system, is that 90% or like 95% of all our Net assets are used up in the last six months of our life trying to keep our body alive when it's going to die at some point relatively soon. It was just story after story of people going bankrupt because of medical expenses of something that happened near the end of their life that sucked up all the resources. And that we hear this too. This poor guy is like the doctor in those situations. He's thrown everything he can at this dying patient, but it's it's dying. It took extra money and it made it live a little bit longer, but the, the, the result was there when he looked at the code on the first day. This is not something that's going to have legs as it stands. And Steve's economic argument, my value proposition argument, are both bringing other things like this thing as it is right now is not really worth investing more time and money into given the proposition that the regulations are going to change. And this is a nightmare of things to begin with. And you can't change it that quickly because it's such a nightmare. Now, it's interesting. Is there a fitness routine that we could have started with at the beginning where every year we try to work on eating better or drinking less or, you know, going outside more, putting ourselves in better air or something? Who knows? But there still seems I think Steve makes a very important point. No matter even if we have a healthy life cycle, and we're constantly improving our code. If there still seems to be alive because of this unplanned use problem. We keep adapting software for things that was never designed to do in the first place. And when you start doing that, the architecture just can't handle it. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, that's a good segue, Earl. You talk about eating healthier, losing weight, moderating your drinking, whatever. That's resolution. And to me, that talks about the second part of the survey we did for people was to ask them, what are they going to do next year? 
these are examples. These, uh, the ones that we read today are examples of things. And I'm sure everybody out there has got some kind of example of a project in the last few years that didn't really match expectations and cause them a lot of heartache. You know, we, we kind of queried everybody and they came back with a list of, of focused things. Maybe it's self-serving to our mission, but the, the number one thing that came back was improving software engineering practices. I wonder if it was just a little too catch-up. Does it mean code? Because did some people think oh, my engineering practices, I got to get more technically astute. I want to learn a new language. Or is it really about the practices itself? Because here at Constructs, of course, we mean when we say software engineering practice, it means how you organize yourself, the kind of skill level you bring. As Steve was mentioning earlier, do you have a coding standard, for example? I mean, that's a simple practice that really helps bring out the quality and identify those net negative performers. So maybe this was a little too broad, but I'm, I'm glad to see it got the most votes because at least people are thinking about, hey, there, there can be a better world out there, and I want to be a part of that. And they want a they want a better way. They want a better way, right? I think that's the way I would interpret it. Yeah, I should point out here that quite often when I'm working with organizations, particularly teaching classes, I'll be teaching some technique designed by contract, whatever. And the youngin says to me, "Oh, come on, Steve, you don't really do this on your projects. When you're when you're writing code, do you really do this?" And my answer is yes, absolutely. If I'm not willing to do it myself, I'm not willing to teach it to you. With my point being that, look, I started off in the same shoes as you. Projects are painful. And if you're enjoying the pain on your projects, go ahead, knock yourself silly. <laughs> but when you want to make the pain go away, come talk to us. We have ways of making the pain going away. Uh, that is why I'm teaching this stuff. This is why we do this stuff. It makes the pain go away. <laughs> so, yeah, when you're ready for the pain to go away, come talk to us. We, we, can, we can help. <laughs> well, how about improving agile practices? You would think this stuff would be stable out there. and We'd put ourselves out of business because nobody, everybody is doing perfect agile and, and projects are shipping on time, on budget, all that kind of stuff. Well, Mark, problems we have with Agile today is that Agile was vetted by really smart people for other really smart people. All those end-of-the-tail programmers I talked about earlier, that Agile was invented for them. And so a lot of the early books, all the early videos and blog posts, the things that people still refer to, talk about that form of Agile, not the more moderated, hey, let's bring back some standard engineering practices back into this reality, like Steve's design by contract. He's mentioned a couple of times saying, you don't hear about that in early Agile because he is young and saying, well, that's the work. It's like, yeah. So how do we set up this contract? Or things like, how do user stories actually try to improve requirements? And their, their improvement was not the user story template, which is trash, 90% trash. It was just supposed to enough reminders to have an in-depth human conversation that was richer than written language. That we can talk about all the aspects and look at all the edge cases and have these wonderful conversations no, we don't have the conversations anymore because that wasn't what written about back in the day. And so one of the things that we're struggling with with the Agile practices is that the body of knowledge, which was deeply influenced from the early 2000s, is not the Agile that actually works in everyday practice. Well, I'm going to argue, as I often have, that if you really boil down Agile to its ultimate essence, it really is about how projects are being managed. It is project management. It says nothing about how you're doing the requirements work. It says nothing about how you're controlling complexity in the code base. It says nothing about having adequate supporting documentation for the service life 
of the software. Improving agile practices is just recognizing the fact that agile in and of itself out of the box is inadequate. We need to go beyond and start looking at better ways of doing requirements work, better ways of managing code complexity, all of these things that are just not in agile. And the fact that they're not in agile says we still have problems and we've, we've got to take a, a broader systemic view of how to do software. I mean, Earl, yeah, those people that are good at doing software will do a lot of these things implicitly. Right. And what we need to do is to be making it more explicit. Or cloning those people. That's exactly my point. It's just where we just assume people were as good as we were, would do all these proper practices because that's what you did as a good developer. And no, they don't. <laughs> so yeah. we have to bring those things back in. To follow on through the through the list here, the, the next kind of equally waiting were requirements and an estimation, both project and task. Yeah. The people at the standards report would be shocked to hear you say that. <laughs> as would I, based on my data. <laughs> What's so funny is I tell the story of the standards data chaos report. And every two years, they try to sell the report to people. And every two years, the report still said requirements and, and project management, but primarily an estimation. Requirements and estimation, requirements and estimation. And so these are like, no one's going to buy a report if we keep telling them requirements and estimation, because it never changes year after year. <laughs> and so they started trying to say, what makes a project succeed? And, they, and what you read in the succeeds are, we do better requirements and we have better estimation. Prize. What's the issue with these two things is not so much the techniques. We kind of know the techniques. We know how to do better requirements. We know how to do better estimation. But too many of these are fundamentally human issues as opposed to technique issues, that we have different human beings who have different wants and desires, different levels of interest, and they're not willing to accept and do the techniques because it doesn't give them the answer that they want at that time. I want my requirements. I want you to read my mind and know exactly what the future holds so I don't have to spend time and work doing the modeling and analysis to figure it out. Oh, I just want this date, this target met. I don't care what the work actually says and have to make trade-offs early on to actually come up with a viable product strategy. I just want my date and all my content too. It's the human issues here that drive these things nuts, not so much the technology or the technique issues. Right. Leave me alone, let me code. <laughs> well, yeah, and the disasters having to do with poor quality code at a former employer to remain nameless. The saying amongst us developers was, quote, the management wanted it badly, and that's just how they got it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Your joke about leaving alone code is it's not often a developer problem. It's, it's the project as defined is not viable. You gave me a too big of a scope for too small of a schedule with too weird set of dependencies, particularly dependencies among the stakeholder community who cannot agree what this project should even be about. I work with a company in the Northwest here, which I also rename Nameless. Everything is run by committee. Everything's run by 15 different stakeholders who all have different desires for the same initiative and really don't have any incentive to come together and agree. And people come to say, how do we manage that? Sometimes you have to just sort of say, what we heard you say is, what we're going to do with that is this, and define that this thing is something viable. I worked at the company that Steve did, and I said, one of the things I noticed early in my career is that any team, any good team, the first thing they got did when they got together was revise the charter they were given by the management team, because the management team really couldn't come together, and they tried to make everyone happy. 
And the team would get together and say, okay, here's what's actually doable. Here's what we're going to produce for you. Um, <laughs> because what you said was nonsense. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and quite often resorting to committees to basically avoid blame. Hey, it wasn't my decision. The committee decided that. Don't blame me. All right, a couple more. Also on the list that got a number of votes was addressing technical debt. It's always, always there. You know, that's a really a fun question to think about because if you take Steve's economic life argument seriously, like this has a three-year, a five-year lifespan, start investing in its replacement on day one, knowing it's coming, you could start saying, you know what, maybe, maybe a certain level of technical debt is not a bad thing. We don't want to spend the money and time trying to reverse some of it because we're going to just know we're going to toss it out long and really have a good toss-out plan and start that strategy going forward as opposed to can we eliminate it? Because I think it's like any other part of our life. Debt is a good tool to use to trade off for other things that you want at a given time. Can you manage and maintain it to a level that meets your budget and your plans? Then it's a great tool to have as opposed to I got to eliminate every aspect of it because it's inherently evil by itself. Yeah, it's all about managing the debt consciously and deliberately. Yeah, And maybe just having an agreement about what what you will carry forward because you are making a conscious decision about certain things that are going to be problematic down the road, but you're all accepting that you're not going to deal with them. And don't complain when we do have to deal with them because we knew we made that decision. And then the last thing on the list that, uh, that got a number of votes on here was test automation. And, and uh, maybe that's a broader issue uh, that we can, we can hit at another podcast, but I, I think a lot of folks look to that to automation to try and get people off the treadmills of the ways they're doing things, looking for ways to find more mundane testing aspects and get that process working. It's also related, I think, to DevOps being mainstream. In order to be able to do an, an efficient pipeline, you really have to have some level of automation in, in your testing that is required to achieve some kind of a fast out the door type of release cycle. Well, of course, I'm going to be the contrarian here and say one of the problems that I see in the industry is that we try and test the quality in after the code has been written rather than build the quality in. We depend too much on testing. Therefore, we need to automate it because we depend so much on it. I, my belief is that we can approach software in a way that depends much less on testing and has other ways of achieving the quality goals that don't cost nearly as much. But that's another story for another time. <laughs> I'm halfway there with you. But I think this testing automation is a really interesting puzzle if you, if when you really get into it. Incremental development, regression testing gives you that kind of peace of mind, hardly ever finds a thing. When it does, it seems like you know, all investment's worth it. But again, here's something where we really haven't done a good cost-benefit analysis for that occasional find on a regression test that gives us the warm sleeping at night. You know, how much do we spend to do that? But the other thing, too, is I've been working with more and more companies who have configurable software that the customer can configure it in multiple ways and use it, for, again, for things almost wasn't designed about. Mm -hmm. And the number of combinations is staggering. And to think that we're going to be able to test all those combinations becomes kind of crazy. Right. So I, what I try to argue is like, okay, test automation is good, but let's pick a subset some guaranteed configurations of this. So we are saying, we know this configuration works. We've actually tested and continuously tested to make sure this configuration still works even after we make changes so that you can say, well, we don't use that one, but we use something like it. You could have some assurance out there because we cannot test every configuration. 
Yeah, but a local company that, uh, we'll talk about them, Microsoft, they've done some studies into something called combinatorial testing, and in particular, something called all pairs testing. When you have many, many combinations, it's the combinatorial explosion problem, Earl. According to some data that they've stated that 80% of the time the code is broken, it's broken in one thing. This thing is broken. 80% of the remainder of the time the code is broken, it's broken because of an interaction between pairs of things. The point being that 96% of the time there's a problem, it exists in single things or pairs of things. Mm -hmm. And so I get 96% of my ability to find defects just by testing all pairings of the combinations and not worrying about all triples, all quadruples, all possible pairs. And would I be sufficiently happy with getting 96% of my ability to find defects, vastly reducing the number of test case combinations that I've got to test at one particular customer? Was the number of combinations led to all possible combinations, 1.4 million test cases to test all possible combinations, but to do all pairings of the combinations, it was something like 165. And so would I be satisfied with 165 test cases being able to find 96% of the findable defects and shine on the remaining 4% of the defects with the other 1.4 million minus 165? And that's a risk assessment you want to take, right? Yeah, very different. But here's where automation makes sense. If you're going to invest in automation, you invest in automation on those pairwise Automate that so that as you make change and stuff, that the pairs yes. all still pass. That's a good that's a good investment. But trying to invest and automate 1.4 million combinations is crazy. Yep, right. I agree. But even that won't be stable. Test automation brings its own issues. Where the t- automation has is code now that has to be maintained and upgraded and life cycled. And so Steve and I both really talk a lot about is that testing is a risk mitigation strategy, in which case. You want to make sure your risk reduction leverage is not more expensive than the risk you're going to face. <laughs> right. That is, yeah. you don't want to spend more trying to mitigate the risk than the actual risk occurring would actually cause. And this is what too many organizations do. They're relying on testing and they think, oh, I must be testing because I can't let any bug out. Well, if the bug is trivial, maybe you let your, I mean, Google is great at this, right? For years where everything was in beta for decades and because it's like, yeah, we're just not going to test it, but have fun. And if you see a bug, tell us, because then we'll maybe think, you know, think about fixing it. Yeah, risk-based testing is a, a critical component in all of this. But the other thing is, is that I think it's interesting with the focus on test automation, is there enough focus on automating the right set of test cases? Mm-hmm. Because if you have an ineffective set of test cases, the fact that they're automated doesn't really do you any good because they're crappy test cases. Right. And so this is the whole idea of test coverage. Let's make sure that we have an efficient and effective set of test cases. And and then we'll worry about automating an efficient and effective set of test cases, all pairs being one example of that. But I just see too many people going down the automation route with with essentially useless test cases. They're inefficient. They're ineffective. But they're automated, so that must be good. (laughs) At least they're cheaper to run now. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. We can get the co-op to run these. Where's the co-op? 
oh, he's writing code. You said it was part of the DevOps. And DevOps is another interesting thing when you start to really analyze it. Because one mm-hmm. of the things I think that people are getting benefit from they don't realize is it's just it forces those integration errors that we didn't do design by contract. We had these independent streams and we finally bring it together and stuff crashes. We learn sooner because we're forcing it together and forcing that visibility sooner. It's the right. visibility aspect because let's say most of us aren't really trying to ship to our customers every two weeks or every week or every hour. Our websites, sure, but most commercial software is made by people who are releasing maybe twice a year, and they don't need a DevOps that's pushing into production every 25 seconds, but they do need that visibility that things aren't working like they would as soon as as possible so they can make corrections while it's still cheaper and easier than waiting till the very end and discovering it doesn't work. Yeah, I think consumers don't want updates that frequently. I can raise my hand as a consumer of, of various software pieces in my collection of things around the house. And it's like, God, you know, another damn update? Really? Seriously? Can't you just roll them up and do them at a more sparse periodicity than just every day I get another update? That completely changes the UI paradigm. Yeah. And the help is in terms of the old paradigm. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's a as a business decision. So they get some benefits, but it's, it's a more interesting problem. It's just good thing, do it. Well, no, there's a reason why you're investing this. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, I think we have reached the end of our allocated time today. Well, I want to thank all those people who did the survey. That I really appreciate. It. it was fun reading all the responses. Yeah, exactly what I wanted to say. I think I, I think this is a really fun thing. It seems to be. It seems to connect with people. They seem to really want, to, they, they were energized by having the inability to kind of do their writing therapy here to get something out of their system and, and make <laughs> yeah. and, and feel better. And I do hope that everybody that these focuses areas for next year, they do consider, you know, going down this path. I think we threw out a lot of things today that they can chew on as, as, as sort of nuclei for next year's changes in the shameless self-promotion if they have questions about how to approach any of these, you know, we are here. We are absolutely here to talk about them. And if they want to explore some ideas and ways in which we can help them or just steer them in the right direction, if they have initiatives that want to do these things, we're more than happy to do that. Any final thoughts to you two fine gentlemen? Well, I was just thinking about mentioning the, the old adage of you can change without necessarily getting better, but you can't get better without changing. I like it. What a fun little segment for the beginning of a new year. Change something. Yeah, exactly. The other thing that, to think about is change is going to happen whether you want it or not. And the question is, are you going to help direct the change in the direction you want to go? Or are you just going to blow with whatever change is happening to you? Exactly. All right. Good sessions, gentlemen. So what do you think? That was really a lot of fun to record and participate in. I think we might make this year-end episode a regular annual offering. A very comfortable discussion among sympathetic ears, if I must say so myself. I really feel for the people involved in some of these scenarios, don't you? And I like the fact that some of you in your epilogue to your disaster stories have already begun to pivot and experiment with changes that could help prevent a repeat in 2023. You know, change is hard, especially for engineers, So Earl and Steve, I thought, laid out some really good, simple steps to hunt down root causes, to dust yourself off, and to re-energize into next year. And of course, in the shameless self-promotion category, if you'd like more individual therapy sessions with us, hit us up, seriously. 
We have a lot of empathy, as you no doubt heard in this podcast. And so that I think will be really helpful for you if you want some personal conversation with us. So that'll do us for this episode. If you enjoy this style of podcast, feel free to give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you happen to find us. If you have comments or like to talk to one of our practitioners directly or have your ideas for a podcast that we haven't covered before, reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. We'd love to hear from you. Be sure to tune in again for another episode of Inspect and Adapt, the Constructs podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin as your host and Earl Beatty as audio hack and producer. Talk to you again soon, everybody, and have a great next sprint.